Well, good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 128 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight we, uh, well, we clearly don't have any thinning processes going on, so there's no danger of us becoming wraiths. Well, unless you count hair thinning. Uh, speak for yourself, Sean. Sorry. Well, well I do, and I will admit it. But... <laughs> well, folks, we'll head back to the common room in just a moment. But first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, of whom the Harpers sadly sing, Alan Sisto. Well, let's just hope my star doesn't fall into darkness anytime soon, though, all right? Oh, there are no guarantees. But no, that's true. We'll have to get back to that in just a bit because, well, to quote John Cleese, and now for something completely different. Well, today we're bringing you another new installment of The North Wing. Barlaman Butterbur had a room or two in The North Wing at the Prancing Pony Inn, made special for hobbits. And this is our place made special for some of our listeners to give us a chance to get to know them. And rooms at the North Wing are a little hard to come by right now, so only our patrons at the Elrond's Honorarium and Kirdan's Contribution Tiers are eligible. So if you'd like to be one of the next patrons to join us, be sure to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Yeah, please do. We've got a little bit of a waiting list for the North Wing right now, but we'll get to all of them soon, and we'll make room for more if necessary. Absolutely. Well then, why don't we welcome tonight's guest to the North Wing, Tamson Barlow. Hello, friends. How are you guys? We're doing well. Doing How are you? Really, really well. Good. Good. Well, Sean, I think you've got the first question tonight, right? I do, yeah. So, Tamson, why don't you uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? What do you do? What do your loved ones think of all this Tolkien stuff you're so into? That sort of thing. I am from Minnesota. So, yes, it is like living at the Hill Karakse right now. It's <laughs> very bad. It's so cold. Um, I'm actually from the West Coast. Mm. I have okay. four adult children who are all... Tolkien appreciators, so my task here is done. Yeah, yeah, you have um, succeeded as a parent. Thank you yeah. for passing on the torch. I know, passing on the torch. I have a degree in biology and a minor in Chinese. Wow. Um, I actually studied marine biology, but I live in Minnesota, so oh, well. obviously it has gone for naught. I, <laughs> I know, I know, it's the saddest No thing. dolphins in the lakes? Oh, it's so sad. Uh, I taught fitness at the YMCA for years. Mm, I oh. have been a set painter. I'm actually a full-time artist now. Wow. I do awesome. landscape painting and relief prints. Mm. So I am a runner and a hiker. Wow. And uh, I like good food. So There you go. You keep pretty busy. Oh, okay. Am I? I do. Um, my family is super supportive. We've always liked people with passions. Mm. And they. Uh, I asked my kids what they thought about because you've asked previous guests what their family thought about it. And right. I thought, I have no idea. I don't know. They seem to be supportive. <laughs> they said they admire my passion. Good. So, yeah, they're the best. That's excellent. That's great. It's yeah. always great to have supportive family and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. we have both, and, and I've actually had the pleasure twice, uh, to run into you in person over the last year or so. We all met at Mythmoot 5 back in June of last year. Uh, and yeah. then later, I think it was October, when I ran into you at Oxenmoot as well. Um, uh-huh. Obviously, you do a, a fair bit of Tolkien travel. What's the best Tolkien-related trip that you've taken? <gasps> That's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> we don't ask easy questions here. All of them. Oh, all right. This is a bit much. And and I'm not a rich. We're not rich people. But no. my grandma died. Bless her soul. She's a lovely person. I was. I'm her only grandchild. Oh, okay. And she, I inherited a chunk of change, and it came out right after the movies. The oh, first movie came yeah. out in 2003. <laughs> I don't remember. Something I'm bad like with that. dates. Anyway, I knew that my grandma, who was a world traveler, would want me to use it you yeah. know, wisely. So mm-hmm. I took the whole family to New Zealand. Oh, cool. We got a GPS. We went to 
all the places they filmed it. Wow. We hired helicopters to take us into the remote sites. No we way. rode wow. the same horses that they rode in the movie. Oh, so, what a dream come true. I mean, it was really awesome. And everybody you met had been in the movie. Everybody. We go to yeah. church and everybody yeah. like, oh, yeah, I was this person. I'm at the airport and I meet tall Paul and I meet some <laughs> of the other people who played <laughs> yeah. orcs so that you cool. see in the extras. And I just like, so that. That is amazing. It's got to be the most Tolkien-y thing I've done. Yeah. That's wow. so cool. Yeah, that's... <laughs> wow. But I mean, I mean, real Tolkien stuff. I mean, we went to Oxford. Like, you yeah. know, we were there. And yeah. I made all the I made all the pilgrimage stuff, so... That was wonderful. That's, to, yeah. that's super That was cool. wonderful. What an super amazing cool. trip. I, I can safely say that all of our listeners are going to be jealous. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm so yeah. sorry. I mean, because no, we've, be. yeah. we've heard from what people who've been to, like, Hobbiton and things like that, but, you know, not to get out there and see some of the, you know, the other stuff, you know, I don't think a lot yeah. of people get a chance to do that. That's super cool. Oh, that is amazing. yeah. I mean, bless my wonderful grandma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a gift. Well, that's what a awesome. Gift. Yeah. What a great gift, right? Absolutely. Very, very cool. So. Well, Tamsin, there's a question that we ask everybody who comes into the Prancing Pony, and that is when and how did you first discover Tolkien's works? What was your experience like and what is it that keeps you coming back? Yeah. Mm. I got. I was a, a tepid reader, but I always sort of liked fantasy. When I was in ninth grade, so I was a late bloomer for Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next door neighbor, who was also a good friend, gave me this as a birthday present. Gave me, and for the life of me, I can't remember which one she gave me. I don't know if it was The Hobbit or The Fellowship, which you think you would remember something that significant, but <laughs> yeah. nope, completely gone. But I I loved it. I, uh, what keeps me coming back was, well, originally when I was reading it and I felt I fell so in love with it. It was just, you know, you're in high school and it's just a relationship minefield and mm, you're, you yeah. got pimples mm-hmm. and puberty. And I moved a lot also. My father was a, working on his PhD and we went from university to university. Mm, and mm-hmm. So I was always, you know, I wasn't too lonely, but it was a nice, it was, it was so much nicer to like fight a dark Lord in Middle Earth than to deal with high school. Yeah. And so yeah. initially, initially that's why I love it. What, what, what keeps me coming back is, Every time I read it, I can't believe how much more I like it. Mm, yeah. It's like I'm never the same person when I read it. And every time I read it, I'm a I'm a different age. I've had different experiences. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's incredibly rich. Yes. Yeah. You're right about that. I, I get that same thing where every read is different yeah. because I'm experiencing Because you're different. I'm yeah. older and wiser, perhaps. I remember the first time. Wise. <laughs> yeah. <That's possible. laughs> I remember the first time I, I read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings after I had kids. And it was, I was so different that yeah. the, the book itself was yeah. just so completely different. Radically was, different. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's, it's really, it's profound how it much is. it changes. Well, and I've discovered, um, I'm liking it. I'm reading it for the first time with my husband. We're taking turns reading it out loud Wonderful. to each other. Cool. Excellent. I've never read it out loud before. And it's, Changes everything. So much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so much better. And and him reading it with me, you know, our spouses are tolerant yeah. and they love us. But it's it's <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. the best best experience I've ever had. So excellent. That's awesome. I, I get all choked up and teary. Oh yeah. <laughs> with yeah. good reason, of course. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's a, an emotional experience sharing with your most important people in your lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. I'm not allowed to read that much because I cry all the time. So <laughs> <laughs> you certainly don't get to read the death scenes. No. Yeah, they, no, they don't get to go to the Golden Perch. Oh no! So, <laughs> I know. I, I cry. Tragedy. I know. Well, so, 
So which is your favorite book in the Legendarium and why? And then after that, what's your favorite non-Legendarium work, if you have one? Oh, well, I just like The Lord of the Rings. Okay. It's just, it's perfect. Solid answer. Yeah. 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 Um, I like The Silmarillion, um, but I, I, I like the elves a little less than I like the other everybody else. That's fair. I'm probably no, the fair. only person who doesn't love, love elves. I like them. My favorite non-legendarian book is Leaf by Niggle because he yeah. spends all his time trying to capture that tree Boy, and always yeah. falling short. And <laughs> I'm an artist and I paint a lot of uh, landscape. And it's like, I know. Yeah. I know the struggle, man. Yeah. So. Well, uh, do you have any Tolkien goals you'd like to share? Any any place you haven't been yet that you'd like to go to that's Tolkien related? Uh, any Aww. special things, special books that you're looking for for your collection? Anything like that? <laughs> um, Is the list too long? I would long? love to go to. Yeah, <laughs> but no, it's not. I, I would like to go to Birmingham, yeah. but I don't know if I can afford to go to Birmingham. So uh, I would love to go um, and just paint more Middle Earth. I yeah. mean, every my kids have said. My paintings are all very standard landscapes, but they said, Mom, you always put a little Middle Earth in every landscape. Hmm. And I go, yes, I know. I can't help it. I think that's because in every good landscape, there's a little Middle Earth. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I am probably one of those people who loves the long descriptive passages of Balerion. Yes. The, the map like, chapter. That's, the, the, uh, that's Balerion right, and its realms. Right? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. So I love the I love the scenery. Good stuff. Well, we're going to go ahead and move on to a lightning round of quick questions and answers. I'll start this one real quick with okay. favorite scene or moment in The Lord of the Rings. In The Lord of the Rings, I like the death of Boromir. Oh, yes. Or maybe Faramir in the caves. Both good. Both very good. You're right. I hate favorites. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, oh. it, it, that, that's a good one. And I, and I think this next one's probably going to be pretty hard from you from what I, for, pretty hard for you from what I've heard so far. But what's the one yeah. place in Middle Earth you wish you could visit? No, it's awful. I've thought about this because you've asked other people. And I think I would actually like to live in Athelion after the War of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Back when it's made into a big, I don't want to hang out with the elves. I would always feel slightly yeah. inferior. Yeah. <laughs> Just too perfect. And if you didn't feel inferior, they would remind you. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, they're always looking down their noses at us, you know. After cover. I would like to hang out with Usurper. the humans. And, sickly. And, sickly. Yeah. yeah. I actually would really like to be in Athelion. I think yeah. at its prime, it'd be beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, when Faramir is ruling it with Eowyn, and it is, uh, yeah, that, yes. that would be great. Right? Yeah. That would be, yeah. That would. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's an easy one. You've listened to the show. Mm. Balrog wings, actual or metaphorical? No. It's <laughs> <laughs> very clearly a no. <laughs> Rivendell or Lorien? Neither. Because ultimately, I would feel out of place and a bit inferior. There you go. Also, they're full well, of elves. I mean, which one to go visit, though? Rivendell, because I really like, I like, I, I like food. I like dancing, and I think it seemed more home, uh, homey, more that yeah. Danish huga kind of thing. You know, that's okay. All the rage right now, the coziness. Yeah, yeah. Get that. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I know this is a hard one. I'm not sure how we ended up with this in the lightning questions, but so it's got to be a short answer. What do you think happened to the Entwives? <gasps> I think they're dead. Yeah. Tragically, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. definitely a lightning round. And those are some great answers, Tamsin, no doubt. <laughs> they, they were. They were the best. And Tamsin, before we let you go, we just wanted to thank you for uh, mm-hmm. asking us the question that led to our discussion of race in episode 114. Yeah. Absolutely. That was right. such an incredible learning experience for us. And it was a challenge in, I think, the best possible way. And I'm, I yeah. think both Alan and I are really glad we got the chance to do it. So um, 
Thank you. If you hadn't asked well, that question, I, I don't think we would have attempted to tackle it. So. Certainly not yet. I was so impressed that you oh. took that question. It was very terrifying, I'm sure. It was a little scary. <laughs> I wasn't a little bit. I wasn't willing to go down that rat hole. Like, I don't know, man. It yeah. could get really ugly. So I was glad you did it and you did a wonderful job. So, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Good job, man. Appreciate it very much. Well, thanks, Tamsin, mm-hmm. for joining us today here in the North Wing. We really have enjoyed having you here, but I think it's time for all of us to head on back to the common room and join the rest of the listeners. That's right. So thanks one more time, Tamsin, and we'll see you back at our next questions after nightfall, if not sooner. Bye. And now we return you to the podcast in progress. Well, it's always fun to get to know some of our listeners. Always. And we've got a few more on the waiting list for the North Wing for the rest of season three and the beginning of season four. So stay tuned for more. Definitely. And now let's see what happens when we get to the top of Amansul in the second part of chapter 11, A Knife in the Dark. All right. I'm going to go ahead and pick up exactly where we left off last week, right after Frodo fell into an uneasy sleep as the flashes were going on at the top of the mountain. Okay. They had not gone far on the fifth day when they left the last straggling pools and reed beds of the marshes behind them. The land before them began steadily to rise again. Away in the distance eastward, they could now see a line of hills. The highest of them was at the right of the line and a little separated from the others. It had a conical top, slightly flattened at the summit. That is weather top, said Strider. The old road, which we have left far away on our right, runs to the south of it and passes not far from its foot. We might reach it by noon tomorrow if we go straight towards it. I suppose we'd better do so. What do you mean? asked Frodo. I mean, when we do get there, it is not certain what we shall find. It is close to the road. But surely we were hoping to find Gandalf there. Yes, but the hope is faint. If he comes this way at all, he may not pass through Bree, and so he may not know what we are doing. And anyway, unless by luck we arrive almost together, we shall miss one another. It will not be safe for him or for us to wait there long. If the riders fail to find us in the wilderness, they are likely to make for Weathertop themselves. It commands a wide view all round. Indeed, there are many birds and beasts in this country that could see us as we stand here from that hilltop. Not all the birds are to be trusted, and there are other spies more evil than they are. The hobbits looked anxiously at the distant hills. Sam looked up into the pale sky, fearing to see hawks or eagles hovering over them with bright, unfriendly eyes. You do make me feel uncomfortable and lonesome, Strider, he said. Well, that's Strider's job right now, is to make you feel a little uncomfortable. teach them the caution that they really should have, and yeah, should should have had all along. Yeah. Nothing wrong with a little bit of discomfort, folks, if it keeps you safe. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that Mm -hmm. we saw comfort as such a theme in The Hobbit, and you do see it, you know, in this early part of Lord of the Rings. It makes sense. Not often in so many words, but occasionally no. you do you do get a very clear statement. The on-the-nose reference to comfort. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, it was the same thing in The Hobbit, right? I mean, it. Mm-hmm. we saw it a lot in terms of the words comfort and its synonyms, but eventually we just started seeing it in the concept of themes. and Just what was going on. Exactly. And, yeah, circumstances, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And of course, we'll see shortly that Frodo will, will feel even more <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> Quite. That, that's a little later. So Strider points out Weathertop, and it's interesting, we see this uh, this geographical feature of this line of hills. At the very end of the line is Weathertop, the highest of the hills. Mm-hmm. I do like that. what we see about why this is such a good vantage point. Yeah, absolutely. That close to the road, mm-hmm. really high up, flat, easy to get to the top. Well, I mean, not easy, but, you know, possible. Right. Uh, it's a climbable hill. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and a place to, you know, a viewpoint from which to, to look out. But it's a little bit of a hike. I mean, Strider's saying, look, even if we go straight towards it, it's going to be noon tomorrow. And at this point, they hadn't even gone very far on the fifth day. So it's a ways off. They know that. Mm-hmm. Or he knows that, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least. And then if they get there, there's no guarantees that they'll find Gandalf there. No. In fact, the odds oh. are pretty slim because, mm-hmm. like he said, he's not going to hang around. Right. You know, this isn't the local Starbucks where you can just plug into the Wi-Fi and sit around for a few hours. <laughs> and yeah. sit there and pretend to work on his screenplay for several days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on my screenplay. Don't bother me. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's because they can be seen atop the hill just mm-hmm. as much as they can see out. So yeah. it's not a safe place to hang out. Right. Well, and they know it's Strider knows that it's it's a place where the riders would go mm-hmm. and use as a lookout. Right. So, but I thought it was interesting that he reminded us that not all birds are to be trusted. You know, it made me think back to the Hobbit. You remember Roach the Raven and the Thrush that spoke to Bard. We're dealing with good birds, birds mm-hmm. that can be trusted. The eagles and and other examples show us that birds are pretty smart around Middle Earth. So the evil ones are also going to be pretty capable, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see some of that later on when we see the Krebine. Krebine from Dunland. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. From Dunland and Orthanc, I believe. Uh, yes. They came yes. From, yeah. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see that. And I'm trying to think if there were evil birds in The Hobbit too. Maybe not. Maybe what I'm thinking of is the reference to how some eagles are cruel oh, birds. Some eagles are, are cruel. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think there was some concern about ravens maybe. I don't know. Roach was a raven. There was concern about crows. Crows. That's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, we do see that there's a mix. Yeah. I mean, Bilbo didn't particularly like the thrush for a moment. He was (laughs) going to pelt him with a rock, but he got straightened out quick. All right. So even though we're not going to read this next little bit, their plan then is to aim to the north of Weathertop, somewhere along the line of hills, Mm -hmm. and then come to Weathertop from the north so that they can't be seen from the road. Right. Or from even from near the road. Less openly on this this path, a sort of hidden path. Yeah. Yeah, And we're going to find out more about that path in a little bit. Mm -hmm. The next passage I have you reading, I want to make a little point here. I've picked a couple of passages tonight for each of us that are entirely dialogue free. They're all essentially landscape description. And I really want folks to to pay close attention to these. I think it's easy for us as readers, and, and maybe this is just something that's happened to me with other books, to sort of skim the descriptions and get to the dialogue mm, and the action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, a little bit of a temptation maybe for especially. I'm sure for you're not alone in that. Familiar. I'm sure yeah, I'm sure yeah. there's people out there who do it. It's kind of like skipping over the poetry and things like that. Right. Right. I mean, I think I, you know, I think Having read Tolkien enough, I, I know yeah. y- you don't do it with that. But yeah, I think, you know, first time no, readers, it, there might be a tendency to do that. And I think yeah. I think you miss something by doing that. Agreed. And that's really why I actually intentionally pulled these passages and ended them when I did so that we would be focused really on that. So I'm going to go ahead and have you take that passage there about the road to the Weather Hills. Okay. All that day they plodded along until the cold and early evening came down. The land became drier and more barren but mists and vapors lay behind them on the marshes. A few melancholy birds were piping and wailing until the round red sun sank slowly into the western shadows. Then an empty silence fell. The hobbits thought of the soft light of sunset glancing through the cheerful windows of Bag End far away. At the day's end they came to a stream that wandered down from the hills to lose itself in the stagnant marshland, and they went up along its banks while the light lasted. It was already night when at last they halted and made their camp under some stunted alder trees by the shores of the stream. Ahead there loomed now against the dusky sky the bleak and treeless backs of the hills. That night they set a watch, 
and Strider, it seemed, did not sleep at all. The moon was waxing, and in the early night hours a cold gray light lay on the land. Next morning they set out again soon after sunrise. There was a frost in the air, and the sky was a pale, clear blue. The hobbits felt refreshed, as if they had had a night of unbroken sleep. Already they were getting used to much walking on short commons, shorter at any rate than what in the Shire they would have thought barely enough to keep them on their legs. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that was a great passage. And it is, uh, as I yeah. listened, I really was able to visualize these scenes. Very much so. Again, I love these passages that have a lot of sensory detail in them, yes. not just visual, but... Things like the mists and vapors. The frost and in the, the air. The, the birds piping and wailing, mm -hmm. all of these things, the, the audible, the yeah. tactile, as well as the visual. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Frost in the air and the sky a pale, clear blue. You really see that very early autumn sky and you can, you can feel the cool. Yeah. That crisp sort of feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, of course, that the, the key here is the hobbits thought of the soft light of sunset glancing through the cheerful windows of Bag End. It's a very mournful passage, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. You're right. Yeah. There's some sorrow that they're, yeah. they're not there. They're here. Yeah. They're kind of thinking about how different the sun seems back home from this mm -hmm. red sun that's sinking, these Especially melancholy birds. the melancholy birds, birds. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the mm -hmm. empty silence. Yeah. Yeah, there's something very sorrowful, very, I think you said the right word, mournful in that particular passage. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, though, we get the, the camp, you know, they, they camp under the alder trees. Yeah. Strider doesn't seem to sleep. He's almost elf-like in that regard. I mean, it seemed at least that he didn't sleep at all. But, but the hobbits wake up refreshed. Mm -hmm. So there's th yeah. that mournful feeling that we had the sunset before. It may not be necessarily gone, but it's been overcome. Well, since they feel safe, even, even yeah. if they miss home, I th since they feel safe with Strider yeah. in a way that they have not felt for a long yeah. time. And it's clearly a beautiful morning, even yeah. though they're not going to be able to eat much food. <laughs> <laughs> they're getting used to it, at least. You yeah. know, they're starting, yeah. to, starting to adapt to it a little bit. They, they couldn't mm -hmm. imagine eating this little oh, food <laughs> no. once upon a time. This isn't enough for first breakfast, let alone second breakfast. Right, exactly. And, of course, they even make a joke about it. Well, Pippin, who always makes jokes, makes a joke about it. Uh, and mm -hmm. I cut that passage off there because I was specifically focusing on just the landscape and not the dialogue. But I love that, that Frodo's response is that, you know, I hope this doesn't go on indefinitely or I should become a wraith. <laughs> and Strider, man, <laughs> where's yeah. your sense of humor, bro? Yeah. No, he's, he's right. He's absolutely right. He knows right. that this, is not, he this is not a laughing matter. Yeah. No. And it's because, see, he knows all about them. Yeah. And this is a very real danger for Frodo. I oh, mean, yeah. this is even before he gets stabbed. But, well, you know, right. just, just as a ring bearer, he knows that this is a, a danger for Frodo. Yeah. And he, he's already wasting away. Not, not mm -hmm. just physically because of the small rations, but because of the ring. Because of the, the ring, ring itself. The ring is, yeah. is causing a physical change he's in him. already starting to be stretched. Yeah, you know, fortunately, he's got a long way to go before he's like Gollum. But Strider certainly knows. But it's the but potential. it's not a laughing matter, and I think no, that's, it isn't. Again, it's it's one of those moments where he's trying to remind the hobbits of the gravity of the situation, trying to teach yes. them a little bit. A little gravitas, my friends, would be helpful mm -hmm. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's not done yet in terms of chiding them. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> Strider, I man, I love him though. You know, he's exactly what the hobbits need right now. Well, you know, we joke that he doesn't have a sense of humor, but he does. There are does. some moments where he... When it's appropriate, know, right. Yeah, he jokes, he cracks a smile, very self-deprecating. 
Oh, very. And he gets a lot of gets a lot of humor. He, he does a lot fact, of making I'm fun of I'm thinking of the joke that doesn't make it in the uh, in our editions, but is in the first edition of the Lord of the Rings, or was it one of the draft editions, where he's talking to Gimli and he's he says, you know, that I should oh, trade the, you the, in for oh, a serviceable tra- orc. <laughs> trade the rascally dwarf for a serviceable orc. Yeah, I love that. I think that, I think that was in a. I don't know. If I it think was it was a in a draft. I don't edition. think it was a first edition. I don't know. I, I we'll know it's Tom Shippy. Yeah. Yeah, Tom Shippey talked about it, and then I remember reading it someplace as well. Possibly History of Middle Earth, which makes me think it might have been a draft. But yeah, that's good what I'm stuff thinking. either way. <laughs> so yeah, he has a sense of humor, but he knows not to joke about things like, oh, I don't know, becoming a ring wraith. Becoming a wraith, yeah. <laughs> Just not a good idea. I'm going to go ahead and pick up after that. We're going to be talking a little bit of history here, actually. All right. Fascinating section. Most of it, at least the first part, is some wonderful landscape description. But then we get a history lesson from Strider. The hills drew nearer. They made an undulating ridge, often rising almost to a thousand feet, and here and there falling again to low clefts or passes leading into the eastern land beyond. Along the crest of the ridge, the hobbits could see what looked to be the remains of green-grown walls and dikes, and in the clefts there still stood the ruins of old works of stone. By night they had reached the feet of the westward slopes, and there they camped. It was the night of the 5th of October and they were six days out from Bree. In the morning they found, for the first time since they had left the Chetwood, a track plain to see. They turned right and followed it southwards. It ran cunningly, taking a line that seemed chosen so as to keep as much hidden as possible from the view, both of the hilltops above and of the flats to the west. It dived into dells and hugged steep banks, and where it passed over flatter and more open ground on either side of it, There were lines of large boulders and hewn stones that screened the travelers, almost like a hedge. I wonder who made this path and what for, said Mary, as they walked along one of these avenues, where the stones were unusually large and closely set. I'm not sure that I like it. It has a, well, rather a barrow whitish look. Is there any barrow on Weathertop? No, there is no barrow on Weathertop, nor on any of these hills, answered Strider. The men of the West did not live here though in their latter days they defended the hills for a while against the evil that came out of Angmar. This path was made to serve the forts along the walls. But long before, in the first days of the North Kingdom, they built a great watchtower on Weathertop. Amansul, they called it. It was burned and broken, and nothing remains of it now but a tumbled ring, like a rough crown on the old hill's head. Yet once it was tall and fair. It is told that Elendil stood there, watching for the coming of Gilgalad out of the West in the days of the Last Alliance. Mm. Pretty awesome. Not what you expect him to say. No, not I at mean, all. You know, we know who he is, so we do, but yeah. Yeah. I don't think Mary was expecting that much of a history lesson, but no. it was a beautiful one. No. And you can see him sort of stopping and taking a little pride in his, in his lineage there. Yeah, yeah, totally. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Just a rightful, like, wow, think of that. I'm part of that history. Yeah. yeah. Well, sure, stuff. yeah. It's it's worth it's you know oh, something yeah. to be proud of absolutely. It was a huge moment in the history of elves and men. Yeah, I think it is interesting that Mary makes the connection to the Barrows. You know, yes, he, I thought so to too. To him, that that style of architecture that you know, uh-huh. that particular design looks Barrow whitish because that's what he's seen. That was right. that, but really, that's just that's the architectural style of the North Kingdom. Right. There's nothing whitish about it. It just happens to be the architecture that they used for, mm-hmm. you know, their. Their watchtowers and their tombs, yeah. Right. 
And of course, that was the first encounter that Mary had with of it course, was yeah. in the Barrows. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So even though he's seeing it from that more sinister angle, there's really nothing sinister about it. It's just- No. It's it's Dunedine architecture. Exactly. And you know, it's neat to see these these ruins because the first thing that I think of when I read that passage is our conversation with Professor Drought, my goodness, a year and a half ago now, mm, where yeah. he talked about the textual ruins. You know, yeah, he talks yeah. about this is literally a ruin that's also a textual ruin in the sense that it it's a dangling little bit of history right here. Yeah. You know? and, and for those of us who know, we know more. Right. But for a first time reader, it is a textual ruin. And it's On its own. It, yeah, it is mm-hmm. incomplete. It's, it's something yeah. that you're just getting bits and pieces of just like the location itself. That's a really good catch. Yeah. It reminds me of the, the literal ruins in Britain that mm-hmm. the Anglo-Saxons found and called oh. that wonderful phrase that we keep using from <laughs> old yes, English. Yes, I love this. Eld enta ye werk, yeah. uh, the old work of giants, which right. I think is really cool because it is a parallel construction to old works of stone, which we see here uh-huh. in the text. Yeah. I think it's just very interesting that Tolkien used this phrase, old works of stone, uh-huh. you know, that, that so closely parallels that. I think it's very interesting, although I'm certain it's not significant. I just think it's a fun coincidence sure. that the original old English phrase had enta or ents, and right. Tolkien has changed that into stone. Oh, um, yeah. No, you're I right. Think, I think that's kind of neat. But again, just a cool coincidence because we see Probably. what- what Tolkien's ends do to stone, but <laughs> yes, that's true. But yeah, I, I definitely think that he's paralleling that Anglo-Saxon phrase. Oh, I agreed. Ailed into your work. Mm-hmm. I love that. You know, two years ago, I didn't know how to say that. So thank you, <laughs> Sean. I appreciate that. You're welcome. And thanks to our listeners who've kept my old English pronunciation <laughs> yes. relatively uh, on the mark. It's getting better. Right? We're trying to improve. <laughs> So they camped at the feet of the hills. Like Strider said, it's going to be noon tomorrow when we get there. So here they're having to camp at the feet of the hills. And then they find the track the next day. Mm-hmm. Interesting, Strider's response about the history. You know, you talked about Mary observing it being barrel whitish, which is a great observation. So Strider's response, of course, no, he dismisses that right away. And he, he mm-hmm. explains the history of it. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, I just want to say I'm on Sewell, since you're the resident word nerd, I'm taking this one anyway. I'm on Sewell is Cinder for... For Hill of the Wind. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. and that makes sense. It's the tallest hill at this line of hills, and it's got that flattened top. So, you're probably going to get quite a bit of wind. And so, now we know what kind of weather Weathertop is known for. That is true. I guess windy weather. Yeah. Windy weather. And that makes sense. Sewell, that's similar to Sulimo, like Manway's oh, epithet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Manway. Manway's uh, epithet there. Yeah. Well, there's another interesting thing to observe here. In Appendix A, we learn a little bit of something about a particular group of Hobbit folk. The reason I'm mentioning this is it has to do with Weathertop. So let me tie that in. Um, In the the big picture, you get this in the appendix. A great host came out of Angmar in 1409 and crossing the river entered Cardolan and surrounded Weathertop. The Dunedain were defeated and Arvilek was slain. The tower of Amansul was burned and razed, but the Palantir was saved and carried back in retreat to Fornost. Rudar was occupied by evil men subject to Angmar, and the Dunedain that remained there were slain or fled west. Later, it is said that Angmar was for a time subdued by the elven folk coming from Linden, and from Rivendell, for Elrond brought help over the mountains out of Lorien. It was at this time that the stewards that had dwelt in the angle between Horwell and Loudwater fled west and south because of the wars and the dread of Angmar. Some returned to Wilderland and dwelt beside the Gladden, becoming a riverside people of fishers. Mm, See where now, we're going? 
Now, if we cross-reference that with Appendix B, the Tale of Years, we get a better picture of more Hobbit migration too. First, yeah. we see that in Third Age 1050, and I'm going to quote here, the Perianath are first mentioned in records with the coming of the Harfoots to Eriador. About 100 years later, the Fallowhides also enter Eriador, and the Stores move to the Angle. Then, around 1300, that's about 250 years after they entered Eriador, uh -huh. the Perianath migrate westward. Many settle at Bree. Then we get the invasion of Arnor by the Witch King in 1409, when the Tower of Amonsul was destroyed. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, we're in Third Age 3018, so these ruins right. are over 1,600 years old by the time we see them here. Wow. And sometime after 1409, then, Angmar is subdued, making air quotes there, according to Appendix A. Right. And those stores flee back to Wilderland, becoming a riverside people of fishers. Mm-hmm. One of those fisher folk is, of course, Deagall, who finds the One Ring in 2463 and is promptly <clears throat> taken out of the equation by Smeagol. Yeah. <laughs> All that lies between Gollum and the rest of Hobbit kind, then, is around 1,000 years of separation from the other Hobbits. That is fascinating. I remember mm -hmm. digging into that and, and looking at that timeline when I saw the refugees going back to the Glad and becoming the Riverside people of Fishers. I'm like, mm -hmm. so, okay, there's, this is when they separate. How, how mm -hmm. many years is this apart? So you look at it and you realize, man, we're only talking about 1,000 years. Yeah, not a long time That's at all. Not, not, not a too long, long time. Not too long for them to become sundered. And it's also interesting to note, you know, the back and forth migration. Yeah. I think there's a perception or an assumption that, that Smeagol and Deagol's folk are the ones who stayed at the Anduin. No, they actually yeah. left and came back. Right, right. That is interesting. So then we get this mention at the end here of Elendil, Gilgalad, and the Last Alliance. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to spend a lot more time on that in the future. Just to give you guys a heads up, this is not that day. <laughs> A day may there come. may come a day when we have a long sidebar. Yeah. There will come a day, actually, where we will have a long sidebar on Elendil, but it is not this day. No. However, Hammond and Skull have another interesting tidbit for us here about that. They say that, according to the heirs of Elendil, which is a working text for Appendix A, Elendil built the Tower of Amansul on top of Weathertop, in which was kept the chief palantir of the north. Even though it doesn't say anywhere in The Lord of the Rings that Elendil built the tower, Hammond and Skull reasonably conclude that the fact that it is referred to several times as the place where the Palantir were kept indicates that this probably remained Tolkien's view. Gilgalad's realm of Lindon was in the west. The armies of the last alliance of elves and men assembled in Rivendell, then crossed the Misty Mountains and marched south. Had they planned to use the Great North-South Road, they would have met further west. Well, makes sense to me. That makes perfect sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that does make sense. This was mm -hmm. absolutely what Elendil built. And yep. why he built it. So, yep. Excellent. Yeah. Well, now we get to a really wonderful little moment, don't we? We get to some poetry. <laughs> I love poetry. I love when we get poetry in this book. I agree. Don't skip the poetry, folks. The no, never skip the poetry. Why don't you go ahead and get us started, Sean? The hobbits gazed at Strider. And again, this is right back where we just left off. They're kind of looking at him thinking, Wow, yeah. this guy knows some stuff. This is not yeah, just he does. Some, <laughs> some dirty vagabond who hangs around <laughs> inns. Right. All right, I'll start over. <laughs> <laughs> the hobbits gazed at Strider. It seemed that he was learned in old lore as well as in the ways of the wild. Who was Gilgalad? asked Mary. But Strider did not answer and seemed to be lost in thought. Suddenly, a low voice murmured. Gilgalad was an elven king of him the harpers sadly sing. 
the last whose realm was fair and free between the mountains and the sea. Well, it's really hard to follow that up, but I'll go ahead and read the last stanza here. <laughs> but long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say. For into darkness fell his star in Mordor, where the shadows are. The others turned in amazement, for the voice was Sam's. Don't stop, said Mary. That's all I know, stammered Sam, blushing. I learned it from Mr. Bilbo when I was a lad. He used to tell me tales like that, knowing how I was always one for hearing about elves. It was Mr. Bilbo who taught me my letters. He was mighty book-learned, was dear old Mr. Bilbo, and he wrote poetry. He wrote what I have just said. He did not make it up, said Strider. It is part of the lay that is called the Fall of Gilgalad, which is in an ancient tongue. Bilbo must have translated it. I never knew that. Hmm, something that Strider doesn't know. <laughs> yeah, I, it's the first time we've seen him not know something, I think, since we've met He's stumped. He's flat out stumped. Yeah, Can I yeah. phone a friend? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I am almost sorry that I made you read a stanza after Tolkien himself. But yeah, it's, as always, when we have the chance to include a, a very small snippet, and by very small, I always mean very small snippet, mm -hmm. Of, uh, of Tolkien reading some of his verse, we, we want to do that. Nobody reads it like him. That's no. why it's hard to follow him no. up. But, it uh, really is. I but know. It's, it's, it's awesome, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we get a chance to share just a little tiny bit Yeah, uh, and yeah. remind folks that that is available in the J.R.R. Tolkien audio collection for CD yeah. set. That, Absolutely. Uh, and it's very easy to get. You've got to get it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's available everywhere, you know, online, mm -hmm. reasonably priced, and something that you should definitely consider. Yeah. We get, I can't tell you how many emails we've gotten from people who are like, I didn't even know that existed. Thanks for letting me mm -hmm. know. And then they go out and buy it and they love it because of yeah. course there's so much it, there. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, stuff yeah. that we can't share everything, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Two discs of J.R.R. reading his own stuff. Two discs of Christopher reading stuff from the yeah. Silmarillion. It's, it's fantastic. It really is. Now, there was a line in the stanza that, that neither you nor Mr. Tolkien <laughs> read <laughs> that I thought was interesting. There's a line that says, the countless stars of heaven's field were mirrored in his silver shield. And that made me think of the device that Tolkien drew for Gilgalad. Well, actually two devices that he drew shown in Hammond and Skull's Artist and Illustrator. For those of you who have oh, the book, yeah. It, yeah, it's figure 190, which on my edition is on page 193. And I think all editions, I'm not sure, but it's figure 190. That'll certainly make it easy to look up. It's nowhere near as finished as his others, but it is a beautiful pattern of stars on a blue background. And it's just one of my favorites of, uh, of all those emblems, all those yeah, devices all those, that he did. Yeah, all those different devices mm -hmm. that he did for all the, the Elven yeah. royalty. That's cool. I'll have to go check it that really out. It really is neat. I, I don't, yeah. have it, don't have that book. I'll see if we can find a link to, to a legitimate place where it's provided. I Obviously, I'm not going to upload a picture from Artist and Illustrator. So right. you know, we'll have to see if we can find it online someplace and provide a link yeah. in our show notes. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. Well, I think that's as good a time as any to go ahead and do a little sidebar on Gilgalad, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Well, now, if you've listened to our episodes on the Silmarillion, you've at least heard his name before. Mm -hmm. And I'd refer listeners to a few episodes where he made a, a pretty big appearance in the text of the Silmarillion. Episode 34, episode 43, and episode 47 all come to mind. Yeah, and very likely we mispronounced his name at some point, or probably I did. <laughs> I think I, I think, used to call him uh, Gilgalad. I think I said Gilgalad for a very long time, yeah, and I don't remember yeah. when I when I started correcting it. But when it we is finally Gil got Gilgalad. it right, yeah, yeah, it is Gilgalad. Yeah. So he's also, of course, come up a couple of times this season in the text of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and if you need a quick refresher, he was the first holder of Vilia. Uh, that's one of the three Elven rings. That's the Blue Ring, mm -hmm. the Ring of Air. He yeah. was the last High King of the Noldor. 
Uh, he was oh, yeah. actually a descendant of Finway, though exactly how he is descended from Finway is a matter of which version you believe. And that's what yeah, we want to talk yeah. about. Uh, hat tip to listener Tarek, who suggested long, long ago in season oh, one yeah. that we should make a point to get into this someday. Now, I'd also refer listeners to season one, episodes 30 and 42, where we did hint a little bit at some of the questionable lineage of Gilgalad. Yeah. In the Silmarillion. Questionable, not in that way. We're not, we're not calling him illegitimate or anything. No, we're not, <laughs> no nothing like that. It's questionable heritage, but not, not like that. <laughs> Who's your daddy, really, Gilgalad? Exactly. There's like the first stage version of Jerry Springer, and you've got like these... <laughs> There's like paternity tests and everything. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, no, nothing like that. But <laughs> no, no, not that questionable. But almost as confusing, really. Uh, because <laughs> Yeah, really it is. Right. In the Silmarillion, Gil-galad is the son of Fingon. Right. Which makes him the grandson of Fingolfin. Mm-hmm. Uh, in chapter 18, after Fingolfin falls in battle with Morgoth, uh, and the text actually says, Fingon in sorrow took the lordship of the house of Fingolfin and the kingdom of the Noldor, but his young son Iranion who was after named Gilgalad, he sent to the Havens. Exactly. And that is the story in the Silmarillion, so that's the story we stuck with in season one. Absolutely. And while we do tend to side with the more or less completed texts for purposes of our discussions, you know it wouldn't be the Prancing Pony podcast if we didn't at least tell you about some interesting uncompleted material. So here we go. In the history of Middle-earth, Christopher Tolkien acknowledged that making Gilgalad Fingon's son was not his father's final word on the subject. In the commentary in The War of the Jewels, that's the 11th volume of the series, he says that Gilgalad was the son of Fingon derives from a late note penciled on the manuscript of the Grey Annals. That's a 1951 manuscript that was the source of that chapter of the Silmarillion. But this, adopted after much hesitation, was not, in fact, by any means the last of my father's speculations on this question. No, and in fact, it wasn't even the first of the professor's speculations on it. (laughs) No. In The Shibboleth of Feanor, which is an essay published in The Peoples of Middle-Earth, that's volume 12 of the History of Middle-Earth, there's a few pages of commentary on the parentage of Gilgalad, it's actually got that title, uh. in which it's revealed that Tolkien originally planned to have Gilgalad be the son of Felagund, ah, you know, yeah. the character we now know as Finrod, uh, right. and that would have made him the grandson of the character we now know as Finarfin. Oh, okay. Yeah. In fact, Christopher says this remained his belief until after the completion of The Lord of the Rings. So. Mm. At the time of writing this poem that we just read in this chapter, yeah. in Tolkien's mind, he was talking about the son of the character we know as Finrod Felagund. But when Tolkien changed the story to what we see in the Silmarillion, that is, Finrod has no wife, he realized he had to change this. Mm-hmm. So he played around with the Finarfin family tree a bit before deciding to make Gilgalad the son of Orodreth, another mm-hmm. name that we probably mispronounced in the early season one episodes as Orodreth, <laughs> uh, but it is Orodreth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was Finrod's brother in the Silmarillion. So as he played around with the family tree, he decided then to make Orodrith not Finrod's brother, but his nephew, the son of Angrod. Now, the other thing that's interesting about that is having Gilgalad as the son of Orodrith would also have made him the brother of Finduilas of Nargothrond. Yeah, yeah. And you may recall her because she was in love with Gwyndor at first, and then later she was in love with Turin Turambar. And now she's just hanging around. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> you know what's going to be? Every time we Ouch. miss... It's, Every, it's not too soon anymore. Every time. It's like 100 episodes later, but yeah. yeah oh. Terrible. Absolutely total lack of taste. I apologize. Complete. Complete. Yeah. Such a brutal scene. It makes me sad. 
Shot through the heart. No. You're too blamed. Stop. <laughs> Turin, you give uh, a bad name. <laughs> Turin gives everything a bad name. That's well, you're right. He does. He continually gives himself bad right, names. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we digress. But as you can start to imagine, all these last minute changes would have really drastically altered the structure of entire family trees in the first age. Yeah, yeah. Which would have then required changing the existing narratives. And that's something that Professor Tolkien never got around to doing. So, as Christopher says, there can be no doubt that this was my father's last word on the subject, but nothing of this late and radically altered conception ever touched the existing narratives, and it was obviously impossible to introduce it into the published Silmarillion. It would nonetheless have been very much better to have left Gilgalad's parentage obscure. And much later in that paragraph, Christopher goes on to say, much closer analysis of the admittedly extremely complex material that I had made 20 years ago makes it clear that Gilgalad as the son of Fingon was an ephemeral idea. I cannot imagine how complex it was working with I can't his even father's begin to imagine. <laughs> many manuscripts. It's amazing that he was able yeah. to put it in what the we form have. he put. Yeah, exactly. what we have yeah. that is as easy to read, and it's yeah. not always easy to read, but just as easy as it is to read and mm-hmm. understand as it is, it's uh, a, a tremendous feat. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. No shame in mi- missing a couple of details. but uh, Seriously, none at all. Yeah, there you have it. Tolkien's final word was that Gilgalad was the son of Aradreth, so he was a scion of the House of Finarfin, not Fingolfin. Right. Unfortunately, that does kind of break many of the stories in the Silmarillion, <laughs> yes, and that's why we stayed with the Silmarillion version when we were talking right. about the Silmarillion. Yeah. But, you know, now that we're here in Lord of the Rings, we want to go ahead and share with you yeah. what his, his final word on it was and what he was thinking and also what he was thinking when he wrote <laughs> yeah. this, which were, of course, right. two different things. And and this is why we laugh when people try to talk about what's canon in Middle Earth. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. You know? How do you define that sometimes? But, mm-hmm. you know, we've actually heard from some listeners who say they don't like and therefore they don't accept the idea of Gilgalad as the son of Aradreth, mostly because he was admittedly a weak leader in the first age and yeah. Gilgalad is anything but weak. Yeah, I can get it. I, I can see it, really. I can yeah, understand yeah. Why, why people have trouble with that, because Aradreth was pretty weak, and yeah. Gilgalad is very strong, and you don't think that somebody like that can come from a father like no. Aradreth. But but I also wonder if maybe that's why Tolkien ended up going that way. You know, maybe yeah, he wanted maybe. Gilgalad to represent sort of a, a renewal of the greatness of Finarfin's house. You know, it kind of reminds be, me a little yeah. bit of how Celebrimbor is greater, at True. least in virtue, than his yeah. dad or his grandfather. Well, yeah, though that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm better morally than my grandfather. Yeah, whoop did he. The architect of the kinslaying at Alqualanda. I'm better than that guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love the moment when they realize it's Sam singing. Oh, Isn't my that goodness. amazing? How yeah. cool is that? That is awesome. Yeah. That's when you see there's more to Sam than meets the there eye, too. There is. So yeah. much more to him. He's so much, there's so much more richness and detail there in him. He's not mm-hmm. this two-dimensional character of just, you know, kind of the, the, the bumpkin sidekick. Right. He's got something. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. as a first-time reader, maybe that's, this is the first opportunity you get to really see that. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, he learned it from Bilbo. Bilbo taught him a lot, and he, he was paying attention, man. He sure was. You know? Yeah. And he wrote poetry. Yeah. He might have written poetry, but of course he didn't write this. He didn't write this. That's true. He translated it. Although I'm sure people out there probably know that translating poetry and making good poetry out of it is. It's just just, as much an art as writing poetry. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going with that. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting about Strider's last comment 
is yeah. I never knew that. I never knew Bilbo translated that poem. Right. That is a pretty <laughs> yeah. clear revelation that he knows Bilbo. Yeah. I was thinking it, the same thing. It goes right over the hobbits' heads. They don't even yeah. they don't even stop to think about it. They don't There's even, not wait, even a moment of What do you mean you didn't what? know that? Do you know Bilbo? Like yeah. Right. Yeah. And of it course we know he does because we've we've read ahead. Yeah. But but yeah, and they if don't, you have the cheek to make a song about about Elrond's <laughs> father in the House of Elrond, you go right Man, in. That yeah, is one of my that's favorite a great moments. Moment. I can't, can't wait, wait for that. that one. I took yeah. it now because I know I won't be able to touch it then. You won't. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm going to ask for a whole six pages in a row. <laughs> yeah, I bet you will. Uh, that's all right. I'll just trade you the ride of the Rohirrim. No, no. That's going right. to be a tough one. That will be. <laughs> we we'll to read every other word. <laughs> that won't be distracting at all. Oh, goodness. All right. You know, by that time, we might actually be good enough at, you know, kind of bouncing off <laughs> I don't each know. Other. I don't know. Oh, my. We'd be so like the, the Beastie Boys up here, just like trading <laughs> line after line. That would be funny. I don't think we'll try it in public, though. All <laughs> right. So we don't read the next little bit, but once again, we get another comment from, from Pippin. And this time, it's not a joke. He's afraid about going to Mordor. He says, going to Mordor, I hope it won't come to that. And once again, Strider chastises them. Mm -hmm. This is a very stern reminder. Do not speak that name so loudly. Mm -hmm. Wow. Once again, these hobbits are not being cautious. and They're not thinking. Yeah. I mean, they don't have any frame of reference. No. You know, they know. don't know any better. They, they can't, they couldn't possibly know any better. But no. the time has passed for them to learn. <laughs> they need to, <laughs> yes, it has. They need to learn quickly. And so I, I can forgive Strider yeah. for being kind oh, of harsh course. with them. Yeah, just just stern. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it tells us something though that the name Mordor must carry some power. Just the this verbalizing it, just mm -hmm. saying it out loud must have some sort of effect. I don't know if it means that the the writers if they're within range somehow hear that. You know how like you hear your name at a yeah. cocktail party? <laughs> yeah, they, right. you know, yeah. Over the crowd, over the din. Oh, somebody just said Mordor. And, you know, maybe, I don't know what the what the effect is, but there what is certainly a party is that where the ring rates are just where the ring rates are there. <laughs> I don't want to go to that cocktail party. I don't, don't want to be there. No. I don't I'm care whose cocktail party it is. Can I get my jacket? I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm I'm leaving now. You cannot leave. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think just speaking the name has some power. Yeah. And I think we've seen that with the name of Sauron, haven't you? Yes, been? yes. And we ha we'll see that later on with speaking the black speech, right? Mm -hmm. Sauron himself doesn't even allow his name to be spoken, right? That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's something there. Mm -hmm. And then they go ahead and get to Weathertop, and that's where I'm going to pick up the arrival at Weathertop. This is, you know how earlier I had Sean read a passage that was all landscape description? This is mine. All right. It was already midday when they drew near the southern end of the path and saw before them, in the pale clear light of the October sun, a gray-green bank leading up like a bridge onto the northward slope of the hill. They decided to make for the top at once, while the daylight was broad. Concealment was no longer possible, and they could only hope that no enemy or spy was observing them. Nothing was to be seen moving on the hill. If Gandalf was anywhere about, there was no sign of him. On the western flank of Weathertop, they found a sheltered hollow, at the bottom of which there was a bull-shaped dell with grassy sides. There they left Sam and Pippin with the pony and their packs and luggage. The other three went on. After half an hour's plodding climb, Strider reached the crown of the hill. Frodo and Mary followed, tired and breathless. The last slope had been steep and rocky. On the top they found, as Strider had said, a wide ring of ancient stonework, now crumbling or covered with age-long grass. 
but in the center a cairn of broken stones had been piled. They were blackened as if with fire. About them the turf was burned to the roots, and all within the ring the grass was scorched and shriveled, as if flames had swept the hilltop, but there was no sign of any living thing. Standing upon the rim of the ruined circle, they saw all round below them a wide prospect, for the most part of lands empty and featureless, except for patches of woodland away to the south, beyond which they caught here and there the glint of distant water. Beneath them, on this southern side, there ran like a ribbon the old road, coming out of the west and winding up and down, until it faded behind a ridge of dark land to the east. Nothing was moving on it. Following its line eastward with their eyes, they saw the mountains. The nearer foothills were brown and somber. Behind them stood taller shapes of gray, and behind those again were high white peaks glimmering among the clouds. What a beautiful passage again. It really is, yeah. It's so visually just, mm -hmm. you close your eyes and you can really see that landscape, that view. Yeah. Looking to the, to the south, looking to the west, and then looking to the east. Mm -hmm. Amazing. You know, sometimes Tolkien has these really long descriptive passages, and uh -huh. it's kind of like the the action stands still for a moment. You know, you're right. getting sort of this this tableau, this, yeah, uh, yeah. this still picture. This one conveys a lot of motion, and there's a lot of there's kind of a time lapse effect to this with the description of their plodding climb, how yeah. they're getting tired yeah. and breathless. Even the reference to you know the the rim of the ruined circle and uh -huh. the broken stones and the flames that it swept through, you kind of can imagine yeah. what it was like before and what happened to it. There's a right. real strong sense of time having passed the in passage this place. of time. You're Pass right. Time it really is. To pass. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this sense that something drastic, something dramatic, something powerful happened here. Mm -hmm. And of course, they'll figure it out shortly, but no sign of Gandalf, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. And they've left Sam and Pippin, as well as the ponies and luggage down at, at the bottom of the hill, not the bottom of the hill, halfway up the hill on the western flank. Right. And that's kind of interesting. I, I suppose there's no point to making everybody climb the hill, especially with all their luggage. But Strider's going to later regret that, as we'll see. Yeah. We get more stonework, right? Mm -hmm. We get more of that Dunedain architecture ruins, the remainder, yeah. the yeah. ruins, right? Mm -hmm. But then we get new stonework, the cairn. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that exactly is the thing I'm thinking of. you got the ancient stonework and then this newly built cairn of stones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that's going to be our big clue here in a little bit. But Right, and you'll, and you'll we'll find out that, you know, he talked about how the tower was burned long ago. Mm -hmm. But yeah, age-long grass. Not all the signs yeah. of burning and fire are old, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> exactly. So what a view, but uh, we're going to go ahead and move on. And this is where Strider's going to see some signs. Signs, signs, everywhere there's signs. It's an old 60s song, right? 60s or 70s. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who did it originally. Yeah. Was it Bad Company? I know Tesla covered it in like the 90s, but who did it originally? Five-man electrical band. Oh, wow. Totally not Bad Company. Wow. No, no. Wow. Edit out me saying bad company. Really? No, I don't know that I want to edit that out because then I could sing a riff of Feel Like Making Love. Nobody wants to hear you sing that. Feel like making fire. Something like that. I don't know. Feel like making runes. I don't know. That would be the bad company. That would be bad company. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, man. All right. Here we go. Suddenly, he stooped and looked at the stone on the top of the cairn. It was flatter than the others, and whiter, as if it had escaped the fire. He picked it up and examined it, turning it in his fingers. This has been handled recently, he said, 
What do you think of these marks? On the flat underside, Frodo saw some scratches. There seems to be a stroke, a dot, and three more strokes, he said. The stroke on the left might be a G rune with thin branches, said Strider. It might be a sign left by Gandalf, though one cannot be sure. The scratches are fine, and they certainly look fresh. But the marks might mean something quite different and have nothing to do with us. Rangers use runes, and they come here sometimes. What could they mean, even if Gandalf made them? asked Mary. I should say, answered Strider, that they stood for G3 and were a sign that Gandalf was here on October the 3rd. That is three days ago now. It would also show that he was in a hurry and danger was at hand, so that he had no time or did not dare to write anything longer or plainer. If that is so, we must be wary. I wish we could feel sure that he made the marks, whatever they may mean, said Frodo. It would be a great comfort to know that he was on the way, in front of us or behind us. Perhaps, said Strider. For myself, I believe that he was here, and was in danger. There have been scorching flames here, and now the light that we saw three nights ago in the eastern sky comes back to my mind. I guess that he was attacked on this hilltop, but with what result I cannot tell. Hmm. Well, that's ominous. Yeah, that is ominous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking that G3 might stand for an early version of G7, you know, the economic superpowers. Maybe it was like the early. <laughs> Back when there were only three. Version. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> Rohan, Gondor, and Rivendell, maybe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Gandalf was here three days ago. Now, he wouldn't have known that it was going to take him three days, so he was instead indicating no, the, the three is October. For, yeah, the right. three is for October 3rd. Yeah. <laughs> you should be here in three days. I shall write <laughs> three. <laughs> It would be funny if he could somehow enchant yeah, the stone so that every day that passes a new, an extra stroke, a new mark appears. Pretty soon it's like G27. Bingo. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Thank you. Uh, and then, of course, Strider remembered. Oh, yeah, that's right. We saw those lights on the hilltop mm -hmm. three nights ago. That must have been him. He's in danger. Mm -hmm. Did you notice that Strider doesn't just explain what he thinks it means he actually asks frodo first yeah doesn't he? did you know i just i just picked up on that i think i think it's another one of those things where he's trying to teach the hobbits something he's trying to teach the hobbits a little bit about you know reading the uh -huh. signs maybe he's trying to teach them right. a little bit about how to survive in the wild yeah next up we'll teach you how to start a fire and then uh, we'll teach you what berries are poisonous and what berries are tasty yeah i mean they're not going to be level 20 rangers overnight but well no it's not no. exactly power leveling them but you still they're he's... not going to build up an immunity to iocane powder that's for sure <laughs> uh, no so, that takes that takes no. a very long time very very long time i can't time. remember how long but it does take a long time <laughs> yeah it does take a long time fortunately though there are no sicilians to go up against no. when death is on the line only us Oh, only us. That's right. So we're not going to read that next little sentence here, but clearly we're going to have to go to Rivendell on our own is what Strider's saying. Yeah. So once he's informed the hobbits of that, I'm going to go ahead and pick up there for a short bit. How far is Rivendell? Asked Mary, gazing round wearily. The world looked wild and wide from Weathertop. Boy, is that lovely alliteration. That is what? some awesome alliteration. <laughs> I mean, I just caught that. I just yeah. caught it just hearing you say it just now. Wearily world, wild, wide, Weathertop. I'm surprised I didn't say Withendell. <laughs> <laughs> Withendell. <laughs> Withendell is where we are going, going today. Today. <laughs> Withendell, that blessed valley. 
<laughs> Where elves yeah. two elves with <laughs> say man and wife. <laughs> anyway, that's great stuff. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure we'll get another Princess Bride reference in because if you notice that whenever we do something like that, it's stuck in our heads and so it pops in. Yeah. Totally irrelevant yeah, later, but totally. it'll still come. So he asked that good question and then we get Strider's response. I don't know if the road has ever been measured in miles beyond the Forsaken Inn, a day's journey east of Bree, answered Strider. Some say it is so far and some say otherwise. It is a strange road and folk are glad to reach their journey's end whether the time is long or short but I know how long it would take me on my own feet with fair weather and no ill fortune. Twelve days from here to the ford of Bruinen, where the road crosses the loud water that runs out of Rivendell. We have at least a fortnight's journey before us, for I do not think we shall be able to use the road. A fortnight, said Frodo. A lot may happen in that time. It may, said Strider. You know, that guy's got to stop talking so dang much. <laughs> Every time he talks, it's just like bad news. Yeah, it I, mean, I mean, he's like the Middle Earth version of Mandos, you know, yeah. he just, everything yeah. he says is just, you know, <laughs> thanks a lot. Hey, harsh realities, you know, the hobbits yeah. need some. It is. And I actually hadn't finished my reading, so I'm going to go back to it, but it's just a Please. few more lines. They stood for a while silent on the hilltop near its southward edge. In that lonely place, Frodo, for the first time, fully realized his homelessness and danger. He wished bitterly that his fortune had left him in the quiet and beloved Shire. He stared down at the hateful road leading back westward to his home. Hmm. And I'm stopping there even though the specs are coming. Because I think there's some really important things to discuss there. Yeah. Rather than just the strict narrative of, oh, hey, it's the writers. So Yeah, yeah, we're going to get into some action here pretty yeah. soon. So let's stop. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Rivendell, right? Yeah. How far is Rivendell? We started with Mary asking yeah. that question. And it's a good question, right? It is, yeah. I'd ask it. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially when I'm running out of food and out in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh-huh. With black riders chasing me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, all those things. So Strider says, you know, under good circumstances, trusting to his own feet, he can make it there in 12 days, 12 days to the Ford. Right. But without the road, they're looking at at least a fortnight. Now, that's 14 yeah. days, obviously. Yeah, it's only so, a couple extra days, but that's oh, yeah. that's not insignificant, that's, right? No, that's not insignificant. That's what, 16% longer? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, you and, do the math quick for somebody who says they can't do math. Well, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> that one's kind of simple. but Yeah, yeah. But when you look at that total 14 days, I mean, like Frodo says, a lot can happen in that time, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, keep in mind, this is October 6th on this day. They left Bree on the 30th of September. They left Bag End on September 23rd. So if it does take just a fortnight, which it actually turns out to take exactly that, they don't get to Rivendell until October 20th. That's nearly a month's journey from the time they left Bag End, just to mm -hmm. give you a sense of scale. Mm -hmm. Now, in The Return of the Shadow, we can find the predecessor to this rather vague description by Strider. It's a much more detailed explanation of distances, but Tolkien didn't prefer it. We're told he found it too cut and dried. With that warning, here's how the Hobbit Trotter described the distance. He said, <laughs> I should reckon it is about 120 long miles from Bree to Weathertop by the road, which loops south and north. We have come a shorter but not quicker way, between 80 and 90 miles in the last six days. He goes on after a bit to say, So it must be close on 200 from Weathertop to the Ford. I have heard it said that from bridge to Ford can be done in a fortnight going hard with fair weather. There so, you go. 
Yeah, I mean, much more specific, much more detailed. Right. But it's the mileage. Maybe, yeah, maybe not quite as natural, and maybe that's yeah you know, what Tolkien yeah. didn't like about it. I don't know. I think we just need to know the time that it's going to take to get there, not the number of miles, because that's not really particularly relevant to the hobbits at this point. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, they're going to get there when they get there, but they want to have an idea of how long that's going to be. And yeah, because it's, 50 it's, miles or 200, it's true. This this is a race right now, really. It's a race yeah. against against yeah, the race. Race so, against yeah. the riders. Yeah. A race against the race. race. Oh, that's. <laughs> I didn't mean to, but yeah. That's, that's bad. That's bad. But the last sentence in the passage I just read is really what I wanted to touch on because really Frodo gets dangerously close to true despair here, doesn't he? Hmm. Homelessness and danger, but then we get this bitter wish and this hateful road. Hmm. He's in a rough spot right now. He's, he's in kind of a dark place here. You're right. I mean, yeah. I, I definitely picked up on bitterly and hateful. Oh, yeah. I think we're supposed to. Those are pretty yeah, powerful for words. Sure. I mean, you know, not it's to- understandable. Not, it's totally understandable. And, yeah. you know, not to look too darkly at it. I mean, Bilbo felt a lot of the same things on his journey, right? Oh, absolutely. It was, many, many times, yeah. But the difference is the language used, isn't it? This is much yeah. more painful language to read. It's a lot more serious. Much more. Um, yeah. It's a lot less whimsical. And With Bilbo, just, it was more, oh, I miss my eggs and bacon and yeah, my good pipe. And, right, exactly. You know, this is focusing on the negative, you know, yeah. rather than I miss R- the Rather positive, than focusing on the, on the positive yeah. things you miss. Frodo's focusing on the negative things in front of them. That's a really good, really good point. And this word homelessness, I think is really key. You know, Frodo does not, Frodo does not plan to go back to the Shire. He, no, he is a hobbit without a home right now. Yeah. Yeah. He really, he really is. So yeah, it is a much darker situation than Bilbo was Mm -hmm. in. It's uh, the same, but different. (laughs) Yes. Which is a ridiculous thing to say, but you know. It is, but there are a lot of Interesting parallels like that. Yeah. You know, especially along this road, the passage from the Shire to Rivendell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then, even though we're not going to read that action portion, he spots the black specks. He tells Strider to look, and Strider realizes, yep, the enemy's at the base of the hill. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they head back to the dell where uh, Sam and Pippin and their things are. And that's where you're going to pick up with... um, The hobbits in the dell, the hobbits in the dell. Hi ho, the Nazgul go, the hobbits in the dell. Wow. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, very sorry, actually. The man of the West stands alone with that one. (laughs) Yeah, he does. All right. Sam and Peregrine had not been idle. They had explored the small dell and the surrounding slopes. Not far away, they found a spring of clear water in the hillside. And near it, footprints not more than a day or two old. In the dell itself, they found recent traces of a fire and other signs of a hasty camp. There were some fallen rocks on the edge of the dell nearest to the hill. Behind them, Sam came upon a small store of firewood neatly stacked. I wonder if old Gandalf has been here, he said to Pippin. Whoever it was put this stuff here meant to come back, it seems. Strider was greatly interested in these discoveries. I wish I had waited and explored the ground down here myself, he said hurrying off to the spring to examine the footprints. It is just as I feared, he said, when he came back. Sam and Pippin have trampled the soft ground, and the marks are spoilt or confused. Rangers have been here lately. It is they who left the firewood behind, but there are also several newer tracks that were not made by rangers. At least one set was made only a day or two ago by heavy boots. At least one. I cannot now be certain, but I think there were many booted feet. He paused and stood in anxious thought. Wouldn't pause too long. No. I mean, this is bad indications right here. Yeah. You know, one pair of heavy boots, that would probably be Gandalf, but many? Right. 
Yeah, yeah. that's going to be that's a problem. That's not good. <laughs> Once again, one of Strider's very stern <laughs> yes. warnings. To, Come on, guys. You screwed up the tracks. Thanks a lot. Seriously. You got to remember, I'm a ranger. I need tracks to do my job. Right. No kidding. Stupid fat hobbit. <laughs> Ruined the tracks he did. <laughs> Nicely done. It's been way too I long since we've seen out. Gone. Yeah. 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 It'll be a while before he makes his appearance in the narrative, so we get Oh, it will. A very long time. A couple of seasons, three seasons from now, right? Yeah. Does he show up at the Council of Elrond? I can't remember. Oh, he gets I mean, mentioned. I don't know if there's I don't, dialogue. I, I know he doesn't show up, but I mean, there might be some dialogue <laughs> there. I can't remember. Oh, there's an unwanted guest at the door, Elrond. What are we going to do about this guy? <laughs> Hello? Hello? Can I come in? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I would like to use your palantir. <laughs> uh, Sorry. Oh, man. I believe you have something of mine. <laughs> I will take the ring to Mordor. I know yes. the way. Yes, I will. I will take it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The, the, the what ifs. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding, man. That's hilarious. <laughs> knock, knock. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, folks. All right. So they have, of course, trampled the ground, but Strider is able to decipher a few things, like we said. You know, yeah. that there have been a number of heavy boots, which implies likely the riders. Rangers have been here. They're the ones who set the uh, the firewood aside. After this, of course, we get that Sam is is very uncomfortable. Yeah. He thinks we need to get out of there quick. It's getting late. I don't like this hole, he says. Mm. Sam's really, really, truly uncomfortable. But Strider's point here is we may not like it here, but this is our safest option now because we can't get anywhere safe before nightfall. Mm -hmm. This is the best place we can be. Right. Part of that is because this place is out of sight of the road. You know, right. Exactly. Any other place they would go would be much more likely seen by spies and they want to. Yeah. They want to stay or even out by of the sight. writers themselves. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And Strider explains all that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And he wants to keep them out of sight. Mm -hmm. And then that's what kind of sets up. Yeah, it really does. Because then Mary asks the obvious question. Can the riders see? Asked Mary. I mean, they seem usually to have used their noses rather than their eyes, smelling for us. If smelling is the right word, at least in the daylight. But you made us lie down flat when you saw them down below. And now you talk of being seen if we move. I was too careless on the hilltop, answered Strider. I was very anxious to find some sign of Gandalf. But it was a mistake for three of us to go up and stand there so long. For the black horses can see. And the riders can use men and other creatures as spies, as we found at Bree. They themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their minds, which only the noon sun destroys. And in the dark, they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are most to be feared. And at all times they smell the blood of living things, desiring and hating it. Senses, too, there are, other than sight or smell. We can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here, and before we saw them. They feel ours more keenly. Also, he added, and his voice sank to a whisper, the ring draws them. Is there no escape, then? said Frodo, looking round wildly. If I move, I shall be seen and hunted. If I stay, I shall draw them to me. Strider laid his hand on his shoulder. There is still hope, he said. You are not alone. Let us take this wood that is set ready for the fire as a sign. There is little shelter or defense here, but fire shall serve for both. 
Sauron can put fire to his evil uses as he can all things, but these riders do not love it and fear those who wield it. Fire is our friend in the wilderness. Maybe, muttered Sam. It is also as good a way of saying, here we are, as I can think of, bar shouting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Good question for Mary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They Everything they've seen so far, they've sniffed and smelled and things like that. Yeah. But seeing. Mm -hmm. And then Aragorn's explanation, which I think we touched on a few episodes ago when we were talking about the abilities of the of the ring race when we were back in Bree. But my goodness, mm -hmm. most to be feared at dark. And then that terrifying bit of smelling the blood of living things, desiring mm -hmm. and hating it. That's an interesting phrase, desiring and hating it, because I think that means something different from what a lot of... Does it remind you of anything? Ungoliant, who both desired and hated desired the light. Desired and hated light. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. Even Morgoth himself, really. Desired and hated pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, you're right. That's true. And I think what's different about, you know, say, the Ringwraiths as opposed to Ungoliant is... Desiring the blood of living things. Let's parse that for a moment. These are not mm -hmm. vampires. They're, no, when he says no. desiring blood, he doesn't mean that they are going like to feed to off of it. blood the way, you know, Ungoliant no. consumes light. No, I think what he's no. saying is that they desire the blood of living things. They they desire to have blood again. They desire to be alive again. I think they're, oh, I think oh, they're jealous. Yes. I think they're jealous they're of jealous the living. They're jealous of, of mm -hmm. the living. Mm -hmm. I think you may be right. I think you may absolutely be right. I was thinking of it more in the, the sense of, desiring uh you know to see it to see it spilled to to mm. pour it on the ground and to kill but i think you're right i think there's this this anguish of missing their mortality of of missing their proper nature that's what i yeah that's yeah, what I, I think, think you're absolutely yeah. right no that's an excellent insight Sean that's really good no oh, thank you and that that does make yeah, it kind well, of like know. morgoth in that way broken clock twice a day right <laughs> you know <laughs> That, oh, yeah, that is yeah. a bit more like Morgoth, isn't it? You it know, is, just isn't it? Wanting to possess something and and hating yeah. it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Boy, because no, you, you know you can't have it. And it's such an easy to miss moment if you if you just kind of glance over it. You're just thinking of the fearful nature of it. But yeah, yeah. And I think if you just you're reading it quickly, you're just thinking, oh yeah, undead, undead things drink blood. Like no, well, obviously the ring race, no. are not, they're not vampires. <laughs> so what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. So there we go. Open in the name of Mordor, I want to drink your blood. <laughs> I need you to invite me in. Yeah, it's not that. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. And then, of course, Strider rightly points out, you know, there are more than the five senses. There's that sense of their mm. presence. And mm -hmm. if you think you felt that, they feel they ours feel a ours lot more, more strongly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that makes yeah. sense. Again, they're the ones who miss this. They're the ones who are stretched and live in another world now. Yeah. And, of course, their ability to sense our presence is extraordinarily strong. And then, of course, mm -hmm. the ring. Hello. I mean, the ring yes, is the really, ring is, yeah. None of those other things matter, really, in, in lieu of the ring. I that mean, is true. Yeah. That is true. The presence of the ring is going to draw them towards them, no matter what. I like, of course, his voice sinks to a whisper. You know, he, he's yeah, yeah. using the proper inside voice. Yeah. You use your inside voice when you talk about Mordor. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And the ring. And Yeah. <laughs> So Frodo senses this catch-22, doesn't he? I mean, he mm, really yeah. starts to panic. I mean, he's looking around wildly. He realizes, if I move, they're going to chase me down. If I stay here, I'm going to draw them to me. There is no escape. Yep. But boy. No escape, but. Strider. I love this moment so mm -hmm. much. There is there still, is still hope. hope. 
mm-hmm. Estelle, his own name, which they don't know yet. Yeah. Hope. Yeah. And he explains why there's hope. First thing, it's the fire is the second thing. What, what is the first thing that makes him have hope? You are not alone. You are not alone. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about the importance of fellowship all throughout as one of those big, big themes that override so much in this that we yep. see throughout all the texts. And here it is, really put right up front, spotlight on it. That is why you can have hope for that. You're not alone. You are absolutely right. Yeah. Such a wonderful moment for Strider, whose name we know to be Estelle, Mm -hmm. whose name we know to be Hope, to be the one to pull Frodo out of that that fearful place. To be the reminder of hope for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My goodness. Well, I hope those black specks that I see aren't writers, but we are going to be wrapping up the chapter discussion for tonight either way (laughs) and get some wood set ready for the fire just to be sure. But folks, please come back next week when Strider upstages Sam on the singing front in the second part of chapter 11, (laughs) A Knife in the Dark. Very well said. Well, before we reach into Barliman's bag, we want to take just a minute to remind you about the fellowship of the podcast. As you know by now, our Discord server has been up and running for a bit now. In fact, for the Mm -hmm. last three months, I believe, our patrons have been able to listen to our goofs and our gaffes, our edits and our outtakes, not to mention getting a sneak peek at an episode weeks before everyone else. Mm Mm-hmm. Still, in order to keep that incredible humiliation amongst our friends, the server is going to be limited to patrons at the Gift of Gondor level or higher. So if you want to listen in live during an episode recording, please check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. You can also get access to other exclusive content there, as well as a bit of PPP swag. And don't forget to check out our next goal, which by the time this actually releases, we will almost certainly have hit it, setting up a monthly live hangout with us on Discord, where your microphones will not be muted like they are on our, <laughs> our episode we're recording nights. we to talk to you. And yeah, yeah, it's going to be a, lot, be a fun. lot of fun. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Yeah. And if you're looking for a new Tolkien book, check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. There, we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the books we've ever mentioned on the show, Tolkien-related or otherwise. And mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd be grateful. It increases our visibility, which means more new listeners, more great questions for Barliman, more discussion on all those wonderful social media spaces, and a more vibrant uh-huh. Tolkien community. Absolutely. And speaking of social media, it's really helpful for us if you share us there. So whether it's Facebook or Twitter, Reddit, or wherever you might find Tolkien fans, let them know about us. Now, with all that, it's time to see what Barliman has in the mailbag for us tonight. Sean. Well, before we get to our really good question tonight, I wanted to share a bit of fun from Andrew W. in Indiana. Andrew has a daughter who's not quite four years old and is a fan of nursery rhymes before bedtime. Hey, diddle diddle, it seems, is one of her favorites. So Andrew got the <laughs> oh, idea to sing Bilbo's and Frodo's version from the Pantsing oh, Pony. That's Inn, awesome. And he yeah. shared the results with us. He said, The Discovery. Apparently, a vigorous rendition of The Man in the Moon Stayed Up Too Late is not an appropriate bedtime song. Please <laughs> no, do not be. sing this to young children who are meant to be going to sleep. <laughs> the result, wild dancing on her bed as we sang, while her mother frowned disapprovingly from the other room. <laughs> she then proceeded to jump off the bed, and the vision of a short person jumping from an elevated flat surface while crying, the cow jumped over the moon, seemed strangely familiar somehow. Oh, goodness. Fortunately, no black riders seem to have been alerted by the event. Well, unfortunately, she didn't disappear when she hit the floor either. I, I know, right? <laughs> he said, then again, that was earlier tonight. So perhaps I should say thus far, no black riders seem to have been seen. <laughs> yeah. So in conclusion, I advise against parents who wish to instill a love of literature against singing this to young children who are meant to be going to sleep. 
Best case scenario is the kid goes wild, and I'm still not sure my front door won't be broken down at 1 a.m. by Nazgul. <laughs> well, thank you for that public service announcement, Andrew. That was a great Awesome story. stuff. That's great. Really is. Please write back to us as soon as you can to let us know you're all safe. <laughs> I <Yeah>. hope no <laughs> black riders showed up. Now, right. for, for any of you who are considering trying this experiment at home, remember, a bolster in the middle of the bed with a brown woolen mat for your phony head, probably fool them long enough for you to make your escape. Probably, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I was actually a little bit more fortunate than this when I read the poem to my daughter. Uh, my daughter's but four and a half, and yeah. uh, I read it to her at home before bedtime. Same thing. She enjoyed it. She immediately picked up on the Hey Diddle Diddle references, which was pretty cool. Uh huh. But I didn't sing it, and I certainly didn't sing a vigorous Aww. rendition of it. So <laughs> that's probably the difference uh, between my yeah, experience and yeah. Andrew's. But anyway. Well, if you do, make sure you get it on video. I oh, totally. Website. Totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which means it'll never happen. All right. No. But anyway, best wishes to you and the family, Andrew. Yeah. Alan, do we have time for one more? I believe we do, yeah. We're, we're just starting to catch some hints of who Strider really is. You know, we just talked about his name, Estelle, and Hope. And in the next episode, we're going to hear him tell a story and song that hits very close to home for him. And with that in mind, we received a great question from Bonnie M. in Seattle. Now, before I get to the actual question, I have to tell our listeners what a pleasure it was to meet Bonnie and her husband, David, last year when I attended Oxenmoot and the token oh, yeah. exhibit at the yeah. Bodland. Yeah, they are that. incredibly kind people. And just another example of the amazing community that has grown up around this show. Yeah, you know, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting her in person, but I've communicated with her on emails, and I've actually received letters from her, actual notes from her in the mail. Yeah, and handwritten just, notes. Yeah, so handwritten sweet. notes, and just a incredibly sweet person, and very kind. Yeah, yeah, really, really happy to have her as part of our community. So thank you, Bonnie. Yeah, thank you so much. And now on to Bonnie's question. She says, "In the Lord of the Rings, I believe there are a couple of references to Arwen's elvish name, but I could only find a couple of times before the wedding that the name Arwen is mentioned." We finally get more information about Arwen in Appendix A. Why do you suppose Tolkien didn't put the Aragorn-Arwen love story into the body of the Lord of the Rings? I reckon Aragorn's love of Arwen is at least part of his motivation for everything he does. Why is the Aragorn-Arwen tale considered by Tolkien to be outside, but Samwise's love of Rosie and Eowyn's affection for Aragorn and later for Faramir are both inside? And why is only a part of the Aragorn-Arwen tale told in the Appendix? Hmm. Well, I can answer the first part good of this because yeah. it is a very good question. And I can answer the first part because I was reading it recently in the letters. Ah. Tolkien did believe that Aragorn and Arwen's tale was very important. I mean, oh yeah. not only is Aragorn's love for Arwen, it, it truly is a key motivator for Aragorn. We certainly agree with you there, Central, Bonnie. yeah. Yeah. But the love story was actually considered by Tolkien to be essential. Uh, that was his word for conveying yeah. part of the theme of the book. He actually explained this in letter number 181, which was a draft of a letter written to Michael Strait. And in that letter, he also explained, in addition to talking about it being essential for this particular theme, he also explained uh -huh. why he nonetheless chose to exclude the bulk of the love story from the narrative yeah. of The Lord of the Rings. And I'll read this passage now. Right. He said, here I am only concerned with death as part of the nature, physical and spiritual, of man, and with hope without guarantees. Hmm. That is why I regard the tale of Arwen and Aragorn as the most important of the appendices. It is part of the essential story, and is only placed so because it could not be worked into the main narrative without destroying its structure, which is planned to be hobbitocentric, that is, primarily a study of the ennoblement, or sanctification, mm. of the humble. Yeah. So there you have it, in Tolkien's own words, it is a very important part of the overall story, but because The Lord of the Rings is meant to be 
well, only a part of the overall story and right, a part of the right. story from an intentionally hobbitocentric point of view. He just believed that the love story of Aragorn and Arwen didn't totally fit there. Yeah. I love that word, by the way. Hobbitocentric. Isn't I'm it great? Use that yeah. Somehow. Yeah. I'm not sure how, but I'm going to find a way. Uh, <laughs> just, just insert it into regular conversation. Just random conversation. Yeah, people on you the No, that's a little bit hobbitocentric of you. Yeah. What? I'm sorry. What did you say? Nothing. Anyway. But of course, the, the love story of Sam and Rosie did fit in the story, which Tolkien would then explain in letter 131, while also acknowledging the outside nature of Aragorn and Arwen's story. He says, the highest love story, that of Aragorn and Arwen, Elrond's daughter, is only alluded to as a known thing. It is told elsewhere in a short tale of Aragorn and Arwen Undomiel. I think the simple rustic love of Sam and his Rosie, nowhere elaborated, is absolutely essential to the study of his, the chief hero's character, and to the theme of the relation of ordinary life, breathing, eating, working, begetting, which I'll note Sam was really quite good at. <laughs> he certainly was. I mean, wow. Uh, yeah. Not a lot to do in the Shire, apparently. He put Feanor to shame. He did. Uh, Tolkien goes on to say, uh, th to that theme of the relation of ordinary life and quests, sacrifice, causes, and the longing for elves and sheer beauty. Now, as for the love story of Faramir and Eowyn, he does comment on it in a couple of places in his letters, but he doesn't really answer the specific question of why it's included, especially when Aragorn Arwen is excluded. Right. But I can only conclude, at least, that that one was presumably close enough to Mary to be told from his perspective as a bystander who was close to both of them yeah. without getting far away from that Hobbitocentric perspective. Yeah, I would tend to agree with yeah. that, too. That's I mean, the Hobbits were not there. close to Arwen. Right. They were close to Aragorn, but she was not in their picture. Right. Whereas Eowyn was, of course, at least for Mary. Right, right. And then Faramir was close to Pippin. So, yeah, they had, mm -hmm. uh, they continued yeah. to have a relationship with them after the war. Exactly. So, makes exactly. a lot of sense. Well, finally, as to the question of why the tale of Aragorn and Arwen that's told in Appendix A is called only a part of the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, uh -huh. I yeah. think this is answered by the note on the Shire records in the prologue. In that bit at the front of the book, the in-universe, uh, let's call him the translator Tolkien, is right. speaking about the different texts of the Red Book of Westmarch. Right. The frame narrative. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that frame narrative translator Tolkien says, the Thane's book was thus the first copy made of the Red Book and contained much that was later omitted or lost. In Minas Tirith, it received much annotation and many corrections, especially of names, words, and quotations in the Elvish languages. And there was added to it an abbreviated version of those parts of the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, which lie outside the account of the war. The full tale is stated to have been written by Barahir, grandson of the steward Faramir, some time after the passing of the king. So there you have it. I think this part of the tale that we get in Appendix A is just those parts that were considered to be outside the account of the War of the Ring, which probably is most of it, really. But yeah. there is, or there was, once upon a time, a full version written by this Barahir of Gondor. Yeah. And if you find a copy of it, let us know. <laughs> well, especially a first edition. I'd really love to get a, my hands on a first impression. That yeah, oh, it's going to be so hard to get one of those. <laughs> You're not kidding. I have to say, before we before we close up, the uh, that line about the Thane's book being the first copy and contained much that was later omitted or lost. I don't know why, but once again, that reminded me of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and how the, <laughs> it has many omissions and contains much that is apocryphal or at least wildly inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, I, you know, I don't know why it is that those things come to mind, but they do. They and do. I figured I'd share that. That's so. awesome. 
Well, thank you, Bonnie. What a great question that was. We really enjoyed answering it. Mm-hmm. Folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Please be sure to join us again next week when, well, Strider summarizes three of our first season episodes in about a page. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, his summary is but a rough echo of the real thing. (laughs) There you go. Folks, thanks again for listening, and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation, and it does not stop when the episode ends. See the comments, questions, corrections, and more on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And as always, a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kirdan's contribution tier, to May in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. As always, thank you so very much. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, your suggestions for dealing with guys in black robes crashing your campfire to (laughs) Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Have a s'more? Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll tell work. you how we deal with those guys in Texas later. <laughs> well, we'll try to get those into our next show, folks. Well, however long we've had, it really is still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. <laughs>